everybody. Welcome to Just Sold with Brent McIntosh of McIntosh Group at Remax River City. My name is Bryn Griffiths, and Brent joins us on the podcast. We're both standing up today. Normally we sit, but today is kind of a stand-up day, is it not, Brent? Put on bump. Yes, you're leading in to our amazing guest who happens to be a stand-up comedian. Bryn, we are privileged to be joined by a good friend of mine. His name is Lars Callio. Lars, how are you? I'm very well. I, I, I'll take this opportunity to, one, say thank you for having me, and two, you inspired me with the success of your podcast. I'm starting one of my own called Just Rented. <laughs> that took literally just seconds, and we're already off to the races. Here we go. I think now more, more than ever, we need a laugh. It's been a tough 365 days, and, and I can't wait for stand-up comedy to be back to the way it used to be. Um, tell us about your last year, Lars. What's gone on in the comedy world? Well, the uh, the world kind of shut down a year ago. I don't know if you guys have heard of the coronavirus. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it it did a number on the entertainment world, and so what I've done now is I pivoted and I started saying that I was a preacher. And so they've allowed me to hold sermons that I bill as comedy shows. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you from inside the Remand Center with the other preacher. No, I. Uh, <laughs> as long as you say amen at the end of each joke, I think you're good. Yes. And that is what's I wish I could remember the name of that church because I would have name dropped it there, but I couldn't think of it fast enough. You, you know, I, gosh, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world and everything. In the it, this May, it'll be 18 years I've been doing stand up comedy, and every step of the way has been charmed. It really has, and I consider myself so so blessed. And that's not you know not paying lip service. Yeah, I was I tour internationally for about four months, a little over four months a year. Do Australia and Asia, and that's been going on since 2015. And of course, in 2020, I was right at the front end of that four month tour. And was really looking forward to some of the places we were going to be seeing in some of the shows. And we were in Perth, Australia. We landed on March. We left Edmonton March 7th, landed per Perth March 8th or 9th. We lost the, you lose a day traveling over there. And we did a week of shows at, at the Comedy Lounge in Perth. Had a great time. Friday night was well. Wednesday was okay. Thursday was selling well. Friday almost sold out. Saturday, three sold out shows. A Sunday show, we went to Rottenest Island. Just a, about a half hour ferry ride. You get to go see Quackas. And we did a show Sunday. And then Monday morning, we woke up and we were flying from Perth to Tasmania. We make a connection through Melbourne. And so we landed at the Melbourne airport. And our prime minister was on TV and it was such a surreal moment. It almost was one of those September 11th moments where do you remember where you were when? And I was standing in the Melbourne International Airport and our prime minister was on TV and he said, if you're overseas, you have to come home. And I'm standing there with a connection to make in about four and a half hours trying to decide what to do because the world is shutting down and the line that prime minister trudeau said that just made to stop me cold was you need to come home while commercial travel is still available and if there was anything that it would ever make you come home 
it would be that flights are shut down for an indefinite period of time. And to have to go to an airline and say to them, I'm not getting on that next flight. You have to go find my luggage and take it off the plane. And I was on the phone with a very good comedian friend who had put together a whole bunch of the tour shows for us, Chris Franklin. And I said, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I'm 51% in favor of staying. And I just don't have a clue how to, how to proceed. And he said, I think you should stay because I can put together shows for us. I, we've got a lot of interest. So I think that you should stay. And I made the decision thinking that air travel was going to be shut down. And it ended up, I had a few Canadian friends that were trapped over there for quite some time called United airlines, changed my flight. $901 later, we're on the next flight back to Canada. And I remember one of the flight attendants as we're flying from Denver to Edmonton or Denver to Calgary, I believe. And he said, he goes, we've been flying empty for three weeks. And for the past two days, flights have been jammed. And I said to him, our prime minister came on the television and said, we need to get home. And he goes, Oh, that explains it. Cause he didn't, he was lived in America. He didn't know what was going on. It was just all of a sudden the flights were all full and we came home and the world was shut down and sitting at home for 46 days from whatever March 18th or 19th, whenever I got home to the end of April, my first live show, I did a couple of virtual shows, but my first live show was May 2nd. And that period of 46 days, was the longest of my life. You know that scene in Shawshank when he finds out he got a piece of rope? And and then he, he said that was the longest night ever. And that 46 days was 46, 46 days of complete uncertainty, 46 days of having no idea what was next, 46 days of... And I'm not... Uh, I'm, I don't get political in my comedy. And um, while I'm not a fan of Trudeau, I'm not a Trudeau basher, I really do you know, I would like people to be fiscally responsible. I want governments to balance the budget. But other than that, I think most governments are corporatists. So I don't really lean one way or the other. How quickly the government got served to people was a god. like it was such a, the fact that it was, you know, all the parties were in favor. And to get people, I only had to collect it for a very short period of time before, you know, the Fire Pit County Tour allowed me to not be, but I didn't know. I mean, the first not knowing how you were going to pay rent, not knowing how you were going to eat. And I have savings. So I, I you know, I, I could have survived, but that, that comfort that it was, I mean, it was a blessing. And I, and it was even more of a blessing that, that I didn't have to collect for very long before we were out doing shows again. It was, whew, what a time, what a time to be alive. Well, we're going to talk about what you did because it was quite interesting as, as most comedians, obviously, sat back and did nothing as comedy clubs were closed and and or went and got regular jobs, so to speak. You went and created your own tour, um, touring people's backyard fire pits. And, and um, where did that come about? How did you come up with that idea? I have always wanted to be on stage. I've always wanted to be the star of the show, the center of attention. And going back to being six years old, collecting jokes, I won the drama award in grade nine. I was always in plays. I was, all, I always wanted to be the center of attention. I had bands in high school. I, I had no talent. When I started in comedy, there really wasn't many places to perform. So I took a page out of a very funny comedian named Rob Pugh. He performed at music open mics in the city. He performed at karaoke nights. He performed at poetry nights. 
And I just found stage time. I made my own stage time. I remember watching a Roy Jones Jr. fight in 2004. I had started comedy a year or so before. And the fight ended in the first round. And the karaoke guy was setting up. And I went up and said, in front of a full bar at a place called Billy Bob's on Argyle Road, while he was scrambling to get ready, I said, hey, can I do 15 minutes of jokes while you set up in front of a full bar on a Saturday night? And he went, yeah, man, here's the microphone. Go to town. Wow. And that's how desperately I've always wanted to perform. All I've ever wanted to do was be the star of the show, be the center of attention, tell jokes. And I, I found another way to do it. I, now, you know, now, they, now I'm interrupting. How did that go? Sure. It was awesome. Um, the, I thought it was going to be tough, but the crowd was sitting there twiddling their thumbs. They didn't, what do we do now? They're, the fight was over so fast that I went, Hey everybody, I'm a local comedian. I, can I tell you some jokes? And they all went, yippee. <laughs> and they were excited for it because it felt like there was this anticlimactic end to, you know, and that happened with Tyson in the eighties. And then so Roy Jones <laughs> ends the fight in, you know, a minute and 15 seconds. And everyone's like, well, that sucked. Uh, but yeah. it was awesome. But at the same time, you know, you're disappointed as you didn't get any value because you paid a cover charge to get in and see the pay-per-view. Yeah. And I went up and did 15 minutes of jokes. And I think that they had me go up again later that night. But that's how that's how much I wanted to perform going back to that period, going back my whole life. And when they opened up outdoor gatherings, the the they announced it at a press conference. And I sent out a tweet four minutes, five minutes later. And I said, if anybody is having a gathering in their backyard, I will come to you. I will bring a sound system. I will come to your house and I will tell jokes. And I thought 10 people would be interested. I thought I'd get, I get it. You know, I get my fix. I was just jonesing for a live audience. And I thought I'd get my fix. Five, six, ten, eight, ten people would want it. I'd go do it. It would be a grind. It would be terrible. But I'd be able to get back on air quotes stage again. And once I was on stage, I'm like, okay, I can breathe. Now let's see what's next. And then it took off. The CTV heard about it, did a piece on it. They came to the show on May 9th, which was a Saturday. Our first show was a week earlier on May 2nd. May 9th, we did two shows. CTV came to one of them. They ran the piece Tuesday at noon and Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CTV about the Fire Pit comedy tour. Right. And then they ran it the following day. And I, I believe that it was a lack of good news. Good news. It was a lack, lack of good news. Yeah. I mean, the world's so there full was of bad a, news. Yeah. There was, they were starved for something to run in that spot that gave people something to laugh or smile about. So they ran it on the Wednesday. They ran it at the, the 8 a.m. news or the morning news, and then they ran it again at noon. So it ran four times in two days. And by the end of the Wednesday or Thursday, we had booked over 50 shows. Wow. We had over 50 shows booked by the end of that first week. And by the end of it all, we did 163 shows. And I, mm -hmm. I there were some Saturdays where we were doing five shows. Mm -hmm. We do a two o'clock, a four o'clock, a six o'clock, an eight o'clock, a 10 o'clock, a level. Like we did so many shows and people were so starved for something to do going through May into June and July that there was never a moment when I felt tired at the end of it, I would be exhausted. And I would, as soon as my head hit the pillow, I'd be asleep. But all I had to do was think back to that month and a half 
of not performing and not knowing where the next show was going to be and not knowing when I was going to get to do this thing I've wanted to do since I was a toddler. That kept me going. The gratitude, the real sincere appreciation for just getting to do it. And I was, I mean, the most energized I've ever been for shows. I have never been more excited about being on stage than I was for every 160 of those shows. Is performing in somebody's backyard harder than in a comedy club? Uh, Well, normally, yes. There's... There, there needs to be this, a lot of times, a low ceiling. Most comedy clubs, if people make note of it, a low ceiling bounces the laughter back. Tight spaces bounce the laughs around, and you end up getting more ambiance. You get more of a rolling laughter because the momentum doesn't necessarily have to exist. It kind of it's created. There's a fun thing that restaurants do that I don't know if people realize. A lot of restaurants, if you look up at a decorative ceiling and you can see the pattern of the ceiling, a lot of times that's tin. So restaurants put a tin ceiling in because tin bounces the sound back and it makes it sound like it's busy. So mm-hmm. it, to create ambiance in a bar, in a comedy club, in, in a restaurant, there's a low ceiling that bounces it back and makes it, there's always a buzz. There's always a murmur going on and that makes it sound busier and more exciting than it is. So the first thing you're up against is a lack of a ceiling to bounce the sound. A lot of times the laughter just dissipates into the cosmos. The other thing is um, when people are well lit, they become, they don't feel as anonymous. If they feel completely anonymous they're in a dark room and no one can see them laughing they'll laugh at almost anything that feel that sense of anonymity gives them permission to just laugh their guts out now if you're sitting in a backyard with a bunch of your friends and family you might not laugh at something risque because that you don't want people to know that that's something that you might laugh at so now you're a well-lit audience with no ceiling then factor in sirens loud mufflers from Harley Davidson's and people street racing <laughs> dogs, so, uh, traffic helicopters, dogs. One of the shows we had somebody get a delivery from UPS while <laughs> I was on stage, they had to go get a delivery. I have a picture of them holding up their package that they you know, I've never been heckled by a UPS guy before. <laughs> All of those things would have made it sound like it was a nightmare. It really was set up to be bad, but, is better than nothing. I just want, I needed to do this thing that I wanted to do. What happened, and I didn't, I hadn't thought about this, was people were also starved for live entertainment. So from mid-March, they had not seen live music, live comedy, live theater. They hadn't been to see a movie. The appreciation, the the sincere gratitude that those audiences felt, there was a reverence for what you were doing. There was this genuine, I'm watching something live for the first time in two months. People were laughing their guts out. They were falling off their chairs because they were as starved for a live performance as I was to perform. I never expected this kind of response. I didn't dream that Everybody would be calling me to try and get this. And to put 16, 17 years in comedy, yeah, most comedians have enough material. Most comedians have the chops to make it work. You can kind of will a good show 
in almost any situation if you if you've got good jokes well these people were everyone was so starved for performance that mm-hmm. they were so receptive that everybody i would leave we were like this was the greatest show we've ever seen and, and one of the interviews we did because we were featured on every every news station radio station newspaper the what i would say was the, i've either gotten funnier or people are just so starved for the bar is lower <laughs> yeah it really the, the the just the sense of appreciation that we felt you know i toured kuwait and iraq and and did i've done five military tours and when you get over there you, that's the feeling of appreciation they know you traveled across you know you have 37 hours to get to kyrgyzstan to do a show everybody there is vibrating their energy level is they're so appreciative that they're seeing this thing and having done all of these military shows that's how these backyard shows felt is that they were so far removed from a seeing live entertainment that they just wanted anything any port in a storm they were but i'm you know not to it sounds like i'm downplaying i'm i'm a pretty good comedian but <laughs> these people were so appreciative it was it was amazing what a what a i i, I can't you know it's no there aren't words to express how grateful i was and how grateful they felt as someone who has seen you multiple times i would say that you are absolutely an amazing comedian um it's often described as the hardest job in the world and and i'm assuming you would agree no no, you don't think it's the hardest job. Strongly ever. disagree. Okay, tell no. me why. I I've been touring. Uh, I hardly ever go to Los Angeles, but I've been to New York and Boston and Vegas, and I mean, there's not too many places. Miami and every I've performed all over the U.S., all over Canada. I played a ton of great clubs, all of Germany, England, Australia, Asia. I have never met a professional comedian who didn't do it because they for any other reason other than they had to Mm -hmm. there was there's no other motivation that i've met and i was talking to a comedian a friend of mine so many good comedians in the world but there's a very funny guy named john roy he uh, he lives in los angeles john roy is an incredibly funny comedian and he and i sat at a bar one night after a show and we did comedy albums of our favorite comedians back and forth to one another for four hours, three and a half hours sitting there. And we could recite word for word, David Tell's CD or Chris Rock's CD or Chappelle's stuff. Or We just knew because we loved this thing so much, There, there is, it is the most effortless thing that I've ever done in my life. I remember doing my first show in May of 2003. And in May of 2003, the first time I stood live in front of a comedy crowd and I delivered a joke and got a laugh, I on stage thought to myself, oh, this is it. I found it. Wow. And that moment of, oh, I found it. Um, I knew then. I knew that moment that this was all I had ever wanted to do, that all, I, all I'd ever thought about doing. And when I did it for the first time, I went, oh, okay, this was it all along. So no, there was no difficulty because... And I read a great quote. I posted it on Twitter the other day, and somebody had asked Elon Musk what what um, it wasn't advice. It was um, what encouragement would you give to somebody who wanted to be an entrepreneur? And Elon Musk said, "If you need encouragement, don't be an entrepreneur." Right. And that's what 
when Jerry Seinfeld was asked, what advice would you give to a, you know, an aspiring comedian? And he said, if you don't have to do comedy, don't do comedy. There, so there's no, when somebody says it's a hard job, the, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I do comedy because I have to do comedy. And that might sound cheesy or cliche, but imagine some dumb comedian from Edmonton who flies home from Australia and sits at home going, how can I get on stage next? And they go, hey, you can have, to, you can have 15 people outside, the gatherings of 15. You can have 15 people outside. And I went, then I'm, then I'm grabbing a sound system. I want to do a show for 14 people. <laughs> I got out there as fast as they, as soon as they made that announcement, I went, well, then I'm going to get a sound system. I'm going to grab a speaker and a microphone. and I'm going to go do a show for 14 people. And I did it. And I did it again and again and again, because uh, I have to do comedy. It is, it is the single most enjoyable, effortless thing I have ever done in my life. I got to ask about uh, doing the, uh, the the tour with the military and, and how stressful that would be, because not only is it uh, on the other side of the world, but there's a lot of danger involved. I, how does that change the way you approach that? Or does it change anything, Lars? Well, now you're grateful. These are people I often say, and, I, and it sounds like I'm pandering, but I, I always want people to know I'm very sincere in what I in the things that I say, I'm not like stroking an ego or saying something um, in like, it comes from my heart. Everybody owes the military a debt of gratitude. The sacrifices that they made in world war one, world war two, all of the wars, the, the military has sacrificed so that we could have things like freedom of speech. So we could have the uh, democracy. So comedians owe the military a little more. Hmm. we all owe them but mm -hmm. i get to stand on stage and i can say whatever i want and within you know i i'm you hate speech I, i'm against that but i'm saying that there were people that laid down their lives so i could do this thing that i love so much and it's not lost on me. i appreciate that so when they said do you want to go to a kuwait and iraq i said absolutely and when they said do you want to go back to kuwait and iraq i said absolutely you want to go to kyrgyzstan and dubai and abu dhabi and turkey and so I think it would be hard, a little harder, if you had family, if there was a wife and kids involved. Um, I'm not fishing for a compliment when I say, if if Lars goes missing, no one, there's my, my yeah, my mom would be sad, but there's not a lot of, eh, it was a nice enough guy, too bad. I had a girlfriend message one of the people that was taking us over to there and said, please take care of him. And your question of like, was it harder? I didn't even think about her being concerned for my well-being until they said, by the way, your your girlfriend at the time messaged us and said, hey, please take care of him. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there is somebody that would miss me. Yeah, there's there's no for me. It's a little easier for me not having a family to worry about that they're that to come back safely for them, which makes it a little easier for, for me personally. I think if you had a family, you would be worried about that. But I remember. Um, I always get travel insurance uh, you know, yearly because of the amount of travel I do. And I had phoned Blue Cross just to confirm that I would say, hey, is my travel insurance still up to date? And they went, where will you be touring to? And I said, oh, I'm going to Iraq. And Blue Cross hung up the phone. They're like, yeah, <laughs> we're not. We're out. We, we don't. You're not insured in a, in a war zone, an active war zone. We don't cover that. <laughs> and I had to call the 
the tour, like the people who booked the military tours. And I said, Hey, I just called Blue Cross. I don't have, I don't have travel insurance. And they said, no, you're covered. You're the American military. And they would pick us up. They picked us up at a commercial airport in, in Kuwait city. They pick you up by military guard and you get in bulletproof SUVs and you drive under armed guard from the airport. It's really one of the times that you would be most vulnerable from your airport in Kuwait city as fast as they can drive to that military base in Kuwait. And once you're in that military base, now you're protected by drones and radar and, and the, and I remember somebody saying you're under the best guard in the world. This is the most powerful bodyguards you could ever ask for. And I remember when you're taking off on a Black Hawk helicopter, we would see the hardware that they would have, like the MRAPs and the tanks and the, and the Hummers and the helicopters, whatever you think that they have, for whatever it, your imagination paints as far as what kind of firepower that they had over there, they got times it. it by a hundred. Yeah. They, by a hundred. There, there was more that you were as safe as you could possibly be. Now, every base that we had performed on at one point had been shelled, like mortar shelled. Every one of them had been, you know, they, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whether it's the ISIS Taliban, whoever had shelled, shelled all the bases. So you're in an active war zone and you, you are under that risk, certainly. But no, I, I think that I just have such an appreciation for the, for them and, and the military and the men and women that I was absolutely honored to be chosen to entertain them. Olivia, one of my good friends has done more than a hundred military tours and she, she is the most even keel level. Like, and she was on a base with a band that got, they were in Baghdad, just outside of Baghdad and their base got like bombed, like a bomb hit the hotel they were in. And the, <laughs> I, I laughed because she was laughing at the band who, Actually, like, I mean, which is what you might do if you were in an oh, yeah. active war zone in a bomb at your hotel. Yeah. Um, that's, but I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't concerned about me. And I, and I think that I should have been more concerned for the people that might, my mom or my girlfriend at the time might have, they were, they were worried for you because that's how, you know, people who love you, they don't, they, they want you to come back safe. But yes. I, I, I hadn't really given it much thought. Perhaps that's why she's an ex-girlfriend now. Yeah. <laughs> you, well, maybe. Uh, maybe actually, yeah. I have kind of a fun... I, I don't want to get all psychological no, 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 here I'll, on you. Or... I'll, um, <laughs> no, um, she would call to check in on me. And you're like roaming internationally in a country with not much of a cell phone plan. And I would say to her, she's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. She was just an amazing person. And um, I would say like, hey... Like, can I call you back with a calling card? Because this would have been 2010 or 2011. And I'll be like, hey, could I call you back? Because I have to call you on a calling card. She's like, you don't want to talk to me? I'm like, no, if I call you on my cell phone, it's a little bit expensive. So I can I, I'll get a, we'll get a calling card. I'll call you back. Well, she would call me every day, call me every day. My cell phone bill in total when I came back from her calls. And she called because she cared. She wanted to talk. She was like, you know, we dated for four years. And this would have been probably year two or year three. Uh, $4,100. <gasps> Wow. Crazy. Yeah. No, fa no FaceTime or WhatsApp chats. Back then. <laughs> no, no, there wasn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a $4,100 phone bill that I came home to, but I, she was, she cared. She was I want to change the subject a little bit here. Something that you and I always talk about 
where, that I grill you when we're talking uh, privately is, is more about the writing process. Um, and, and how does a comedian write their act? How do you write every single day? Is this like a job that you check in at 9 a.m. And, and write till 5? Uh, what inspires you? Tell us about that. I want it to be joyful for me. I want it to be fun. It, because you're in it every day. And I, I wake up at you know eight fifteen every morning. I want the writing process to. So every comedian approaches it differently. It would be like how a musician comes up with ideas for songs, or perhaps how a chef comes up with ideas for meals. Uh, how you take what you know, and, and it's most important to be original, perhaps in anything that's artistic, whether it's being a chef or being a musician or being a comedian. Being original is really important. Um. For me, the writing process has always been kind of, I've always liked a kind of clever, tongue-in-cheek, implied jokes. I find, as I realize what my air quotes style is, I realize that I want people to be able to, I want people to have, an, have a moment of like, oh, that's funny. There's a joke that I tell where I say, when I was a child, if, I, if you swore, my mom would wash your mouth out with soap. And I remember the first time I had my mouth washed out with soap. I thought that's the only time I ever wished I was deaf because then she would have just washed my hands <laughs> and the pieces of the joke have to be put together. I didn't deliver a punchline. You have to put together. soap, deaf hands, sign language. So that it's an implied joke. Sure. And I have a new one that I just wrote where something will strike me as I'm like, Oh, that's, I wonder. And the idea was that, how did they name the lazy Susan? And I want to get to the punchline of without saying it. And so the way that the joke is currently being worked on is if you don't think the patriarchy exists and when I'm writing a joke, I want to make sure everybody has enough information in the setup so that the punchline lands. So it's your job as a comedian to make sure that they have all the necessary information so there might be people in the audience that don't know what the word patriarchy means. <laughs> so in the writing of the joke, I have to make sure that I've connected all of the dots for them, but not so much that they can get it themselves. So I want it to be clever enough at the end. So I say, if you don't think the patriarchy exists, if you don't think men have run things for way too long, here's some proof. There was a woman who invented something in the 1950s or 1960s that would help you retrieve your canned goods from the back of your cupboard or pantry. You just turned it and you go, there's my creamed corn. Turn it, there's my soup. Now, all of the words in the setup of this, they are trying to paint a visual. What, what are you canned? And so I canned tomatoes and we'll know people don't use canned tomatoes that much. Soup is a, almost too easy. So I want the first one to be a little bit, I want it to vividly paint the picture of what I'm, where I, and I go, so you turn the, you turn this, and you go, there's my creamed corn. There's my soup. And, and I go, did they call her innovative, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I, right. Did they call her inventor, Susan? <laughs> you know, there's some guy who invented a... a Turntable, you know, Susan? Crap. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, maybe, maybe she had short arms. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe she had broad shoulders and she couldn't get into the pantry and she created this very innovative thing. But no, lazy Susan, you know, <laughs> if Kevin would have invented that. It would have been inventor Kevin. Yeah. 
And I, and I, I like the implied. So it's when the audience is in my rhythm and they get a lot of times that they're going to have to, I almost look at it as a kinder surprise. It's not hard to put together, but you still have to put it together. And I want them to put together all of those pieces. And, and obviously, Bryn and I uh, think that that joke works. Have you ever done one like that? That no matter how funny you thought it was, that each time you tried it on stage, it just never worked? Yeah, I have two that I can think of. And most comedians say try something three times. And if it's not working, throw it out five times, yeah, yeah. ten times. I told, I told both of these jokes. I told one, this one joke more than 50 times. <laughs> and it never worked one time. Um, although there's a, a, I'll get to that example. There was for a visual of before you had a cell phone and you could put somebody's number into your cell phone, you'd have to get somebody's phone number. So when I started comedy in the early two thousands, not everybody had a cell phone. And the joke that I wrote was I was at a bar and this girl wanted me to give her, wanted to give me her phone number. And I said, Oh, I don't have a pen. And she said, here, use my eyeliner. And so then I would pantomime putting on her eyeliner like, I'm like, how is this supposed to help me get a pen? <laughs> <laughs> and my friend Alex. And it bombed and friend, bombed. And... It bombed and bombed, bombed. So I was driving with my friend Alex, who's a comedian. And I just like, for whatever reason, something jogged my memory. And I told him this joke. And he goes, that's hilarious. He goes, I go, no, I tried it 20 <laughs> times. It never worked. And he said, no, I he goes, that joke will work for sure. And I go, no, man, it doesn't work. And that night I went on stage and told it. And I had, it was a good crowd. They were digging the show. And I told that joke and it's just nothing. And he's like, how the hell does that joke not work? And I, I let him tell it a couple of times. He's like, the joke doesn't work. I'm like, I don't know. It just didn't it work. Just but the, the other joke that I tried 50 times was, um, it, if you worked, and I remember just the idea of it, it tickles my funny bones. So I'm excited to share that funny thought or idea with the crowd was if you worked for NASA, you could be stuck on the same problem for an indefinite period of time because what's your boss going to say if your boss comes in you're stuck on a problem and like come on it's not like this is <laughs> put on pumps rocket science <laughs> and then they would just leave the office being like oh, well, what are you gonna do um but that joke 50 times that joke never never got laughed one time not go one out. time yeah hey, hey lars yeah, uh, gone from gone from the act with lars you, you are the hardest working comedian that I know. And uh, I, I, I don't, I want to give you the opportunity, of course, to, to do a, a little plug here for what you got coming up this summer, because you are always working. People can book you for virtual comedy shows. Is, isn't that correct? Yeah. We, you know, hopefully if outdoor gatherings open up, we'll also be the fire pit tour main. If they, if they want to see some fun pictures, they can go to the Facebook group and you don't have to like the group. You can, if you want, but, but whatever. Go to the Facebook group Fire Pit, and Fire Pit is all one word in the Facebook group, so Fire Pit Comedy Tour. You'll get to see pictures from all 160 shows, and there's some really funny moments in there. So it's a fun, if you're looking for something hilarious to do, go to Fire Pit Comedy Tour. Okay. Um, but if the virtual shows have been, we've done over 30 of them now, Veterans Affairs and Catholic Schools, and if people want to you know or looking for something for a staff appreciation we just did royal bank on tuesday they were fantastic what a great crowd they were um the virtual shows have been we're using the studio at infinite event services and sheldon and i have been working together on them they are much more better they're much more interactive and much better than i would have 
pictured. I love people to see it because until you see it, you just really have a tough time visualizing it. And once they see it, they'll go, this is fantastic. I'm really proud of it. So yeah, if, they, if they're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, extra Lars, E-X-T-R-A, extra Lars, L-A-R-S. And I follow everybody back so they can go to Instagram or Twitter and say, hey, I heard you on the podcast. Um, and if they want, they can just follow me at extra Lars and then I'll follow them back and then they can unfollow me. They can just gain a follower. And I'm a bit of a celeb, obviously. <laughs> so yeah, if the people are looking for a backyard show or a virtual show and hopefully clubs are open again. And the first opportunity I have to go back to New York or Australia, I am out of here. <laughs> hey, well, I appreciate you joining us. Go ahead, Bryn. And I was just going to say, Milton Burrow once said, he said, laughter is an instant vacation. We all needed a vacation last year. You did that for us. So a uh, big thank you. Uh, big thank you to making people laugh last year when we needed it the most. My pleasure. Truly, truly my pleasure. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Lars. Bryn, yes. was that fun or was that fun? That was outstanding. Now let's uh, let's quickly touch on how people can get a hold of you, Brent, because uh, that's important too. Sure. The the absolutely funny world of real estate. If somebody would like to talk and find out how much their home was worth, or perhaps they're looking to purchase a home, they can reach our team directly at 780-464-0075 or find us on, anywhere on the web, macintoshgroup.ca. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks, Lars. That was a blast. I'm Bryn Griffiths. My pleasure. And he's Brent McIntosh, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>